Hello and welcome to another episode of What's Brewing CISFA. What's Brewing CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-22 CISFA past president. My co-host Dana is taking an early weekend, so let's do another solo show just with me. What's Brewing CISFA hopes to inform and entertain you 30 minutes at a time. So let's get this show started. And welcome to another episode of What's Brewing CISFA. Let's start this show off with our first cups. Now, even though this show is being taped relatively late, on a Friday, we still have a first cup to drink. Unfortunately, it's a little diet soda, so we'll see how this goes. So it's a Friday show, so we normally try to have interviews, but if you didn't know, this is very close to the start of fall semesters for many schools and is already the start of fall semesters for many schools. So trying to find people is a little tough. So it may be a number of weeks until we really get rolling into some new interviews with CISFA exec board members, people from maybe our national association, and others. Until then, and until Dana makes her way back, we'll do a variety of some other items that are just hanging out there. Just a little bit about Dana, and she's okayed me to release this to our gigantic audience out there, for those who know her or have heard of her. Or heard her here on the podcast. Dana had her appendix taken out. So she's recovering at home just fine. With lots of flowers and candy. And eating what you're supposed to eat when you uh, have your appendix out. Uh, But we should hopefully have her back on the show sooner than later. Trying to have her take it easy from work for a little bit. Talking about work. Probably like a lot of schools in the community colleges and others across the state, our enrollments are down. So that means extra effort. Here on our campus, we do our Eagles early enrollment events. We've done a number of them last week. We still got a couple more next week, which is the week before fall semester. And the idea here is get financial aid, counseling, admissions, and others all in one room or in the same building, have students come by because this is an in-person event and get all the help they need. And that could be, you know, just getting enrolled in a class if they're having some problems, understanding if they owe some fees, getting help with financial aid in case they still were in the process, needed to turn something in or start the process. For some students, you know, that's a little extra work. It is last minute, but we're trying to get as many students through as possible. And I assume a lot of other colleges are doing the same. In fact, just saw some emails coming out from our state system office, the California Community College's Chancellor's Office, as we call it, uh, talking about a big push for enrollment. We want to get students who are sometimes last minute thinkers on going to community college because they've got life and other things going on. We have a higher than normal percentage of non-traditional students who come to community colleges, and we try to serve them in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's helping them pick up 
from wherever they left off where they may have last been at college, maybe a different community college, maybe a four-year school, and they're stepping back, maybe a technical school, and they want to find out about a new program and start a new career. We serve a lot of different people. We have non-credit programs for students who may already have a degree or certificate or they're working and or they want to uh, better themselves on their English skills. Or sometimes we have these pretty short-term programs that we put into our non-credit, or sometimes we call it adult education or career technical education. There's so many different names used across the state, and they change about every five to 10 years. But things like construction management, we started this a little while ago at our school. And again, it's a short-term program, and it's really to help students get into the apprenticeship aspect of working in the construction trades. It's a good first step, you know, for those who may not want or need a full-fledged two-year degree or four-year degree. Now, there may be the impetus of pushing them on towards learning about engineering or construction management or project management. But this is, you know, just one of those programs like a lot of our community colleges do to kind of give students that first footing in. And again, our non-credit programs all tend to be free, easy to get into, uh, and really just stick to it. And then sometimes those students, we want them to meander right into our regular credit-based programs, our associate degrees, our certificates, and possibly our degrees towards transfer programs. So many opportunities. And so if you're out there or you know somebody and they're wondering, should I return to school? Well, think about it. Have them think about it. Are they ready? And again, not to be pressured. They shouldn't feel pressured. Well, I have to go full time, but I have a job and I have a family or children or uh, an older parent to take care of. Maybe going full time isn't the answer. And a student really shouldn't feel pressured to do so if they're not ready to do so. I think it hurts more students in the long run. And I see this quite a bit because I review all the petitions from students who haven't done that well in the past, who want to get back on and eligible for financial aid. So we really want students to think about that. And that's why we have counseling here on all of our campuses, general counseling, and then a lot of sub-programs that have counselors associated with uh, them specifically to help guide students, of course, to what the kind of program or major they want to do, what kind of classes they're going to need. And on top of that, really helping them figure out that balance between life and school. School becomes part of your life. Well, life is always there. And we want to make certain that our students are well prepared so that if it means they have to take two classes at a time instead of four initially, they do so. Sometimes for some students, maybe going full-time and the amount of financial aid they get could make the difference. And maybe that means they could cut back on work or have someone else in the household help them uh, with the other duties and tasks and chores. But it really is an individual thing, and that's why counseling is so very, very important when it comes to going to college. And if you're thinking about it and haven't done it for a while, ask. Come out to our events. Check out our websites. The good thing here in California for the community colleges, we all use one standardized application form. It's called CCC Apply. And it comes through our, again, our state system office, 
And it allows a student to apply to multiple community colleges at once and get all that same information sent off to those schools. Really, you know, a simplified process because we are open enrollment, which means we don't have specific requirements to get accepted into the school other than generally you have to be 18 or older. And for some things like, uh, for example, to get financial aid, you have to be a high school graduate or have a GED or the equivalent of that. But to come to community college and not to have to worry about financial aid, if that's your thing, you don't have to actually go about having a high school diploma. You could even work on that through our non-credit program. So there are some other opportunities for you there too. But the easiest way to find out, contact us, you know, check with your admissions and records office at your local community college, get a hold of them, find out if they're doing events like we do, these early enrollment events, or you can get the help that you need to come on through. Now, there's a few other things that we'll talk about today. Today is going to be a slightly shorter show. So, in fact, I'm going to throw up a little music right here. Oh, that didn't sound good at all, but I'm going to put on a little music here. We're going to move into our second sip segment. And welcome back for what I really should have called our second cup segment here on the What's Brewing Seats for Show. Fill up our cups here with whatever you're drinking. It is a late show, so expect it to come through uh, uh, tonight here on Friday night. Kind of just talked a little bit about enrollment and this big push across the state to get students who might be hanging out there and not knowing what to do or who put off their plans for whatever reason, to think about coming to community college, whether that's you, yourself, or people you know, they should definitely look into it. Now is the time. We have classes available, but we need to get students into those classes. What else is going on? Well, I can say for the Los Angeles and Orange County schools, we did a regional meeting recently of our financial aid directors, and usually our assistant directors are invited in by Zoom, just this last week, because we try to do this about quarterly, every three, two to three months, to talk about issues that are going around in our region. And also, usually, they're either a precursor or done shortly thereafter of every CISFA exec board meeting. Most CISFA exec board meetings are regional reps. There's one from the LA area, one from the OC area, and of course, eight others, there's 10 regions of the state they're broken down into, report out at the CISFA exec board meetings on what's going on in the regions, and then also bring stuff forward from the regions if there's questions or concerns, because we are meeting as an exec board and we might be able to help and advocate on things. And also we're meeting with people from our state chancellor's office who can help us out on a number of items. So it's a great time to do that kind of talk. And also, on top of that, sometimes the state chancellor's office has information or questions for the community of financial aid administrators, and thus we're the sounding board. So we had a number of things to talk about, including ideas of how to raise enrollment. There were some questions from some schools that are really feeling, you know, the squeeze right now. 
about how to raise enrollment. Everything from what I'm doing uh, to other events, to online events. There are some limitations on how many um, incentives you can do or what kind of incentives. Um, uh, just because of like fair practice rules or state rules, we are public institutions, so it's not like we can specifically give you X amount of dollars or something sometimes for full-time enrollment or such. There's some, there are some drawing lines. Now we can do some incentives as far as the way certain aid programs are built. For example, if you get Pell Grant, you do get more if you're a full-time student. If you're a half-time student, you get about half. Um, three-quarter time, about three-quarter time. But there are some things like that that are already preset. But a lot of number of schools in our regions we're talking about and asking about, what are we doing to raise enrollments? Now, one of the things, and this could be partly connected to the fact that we moved to all online classes, you know, spring of 2020, was the potential for, and what we're seeing, the potential for increased fraud. And why is this? Well, and not every state's going to see this. Not every school is going to see this. But we have kind of an interesting a divergence or con convergence of things. The California community colleges, the lowest cost institutions probably in the U.S., other than those few rare schools that are considered to be free tuition. But at $46 per unit, we're relatively inexpensive. On top of that, over half of our students qualify for what we used to call our BOG or Board of Governors fee waiver. Now it's got a new name, the California College Promise Grant. But it works the same way. It waives your enrollment fees if you have uh, a certain amount of financial need as a federal aid form like the FAFSA would tell us. Or you're receiving certain government benefits like um, CalWORKs, SSI or such. There are certain things like that that automatically qualify you. And so if you get that, you get the fee waiver, which leaves you with very few required fees or mandated fees to pay. So how's fraud fit into all of this? Well, if you applied for the FAFSA, you do the FAFSA form, the federal aid form, and it tells you you qualify for it, well, the fee waiver, first and foremost, but maybe also Pell Grant, the federal Pell Grant, which can be a little over $3,000 per semester if you're going full-time. That's pretty simple, easy money. And it's relatively easy application. The FAFSA is all self-certified. You supply some information about you. If you're young enough, like out of high school and all, maybe your parents' information and all, it gets processed by the federal government. The results are sent to the school, and the school will see what's called your expected family contribution. It's a number from zero to whatever, up going up high. That tells the college your overall level of need for financial aid. The lower that family contribution, the higher your eligibility, because in a sense, although not an exact dollar-to-dollar -dollar thing, in a sense, it is telling the school that if you have a zero EFC, the federal government has calculated that based upon all your income and assets and how many people in the household and all the other things, you probably don't have the ability to uh, put money forth towards the cost or contribute money towards the cost of a year of school. So school weighs that out based upon what they estimate the cost of school to be for the year to figure out how much aid a student may qualify for. So here's the fraud part. 
we do have occasionally in the past, mostly with our online classes, had cases where students would apply for aid and admissions, sign up for enrolled, uh, enroll in online classes, get their financial aid be, uh, at the start of the semester because we try to disperse at the start of the semester. A couple reasons why. The federal government has some rules about how long you can hold that money if they're already processed. And then second, um, you know, if you're a student who has financial need, you need money. Why? Living expenses, certainly. But also, you got to buy books and supplies. Maybe you're taking an art class. You need those art supplies before class. Our culinary arts students need a knife set and some other things. They need uniforms. Nursing students, same thing. So we just can't say we're going to wait three to four weeks to see how long uh, you stay in your class and uh, if you're going to be successful, and then we'll give you your money. We really can't do that. So we do give money out, usually in that first week. Four-year universities are a little different. They can disperse a little earlier, but their students tend not to be in the same boat. And so we do have, uh, and have had in the past, rare cases, luckily, for most of us across the state, of students who will do a FAFSA, sign up, get their online classes, get their money, and then suddenly disappear into the woodwork. And the reason that was a little easier to do back in the olden days was not all of the community colleges were doing large numbers of online classes. And also, nothing against our professors and all, but you really have to think about how different an online class is to an in-person class. With an in-person class, and you're a professor, and I know a number of them, you know who's at your class. Even if you have 30 or 40 students, because we generally don't have very large, what we call like pit classes, you know, where it's a big pit classroom filled with 200 students, maybe 30 or 40, but you know them. You know them by name. You know where they sit. And if you don't see Joe Smith every day for the first three days, you're probably going to drop him from the class, especially if your class has any high demand for it. You want to do that to open up seats for those who might have been sitting on the wait list or others who are trying to get signed into your class by the first week or so and still not miss all the material. Well, going back to this fraud thing, what happened in many cases before is professors would maybe give a little extra leniency for those online students and allow them not to have to really turn anything in until maybe that first quiz three or four weeks into the semester. So there may have been minimal requirements prior to that to even know that the student was active in the class. Well, as you can expect, people have found that to be the easy way through. Now, during the pandemic, where in a sense for a, a number of semesters, we've been 100% online, probably since summer of 2020, fall of 2020, spring of 2021, and this last summer, most if not all the colleges were at very high percentages of online classes. So it was relatively easy, if not easier, to get into classes. And again, now you're talking about not just professors who like to do online classes, doing online classes. You had the bulk of your faculty. <coughs> I'm sorry, doing it this way. And so what happens then is things fall apart a little bit. It was a big adjustment for faculty. Some were ready for it, some weren't. And again, keeping track of students. And 
We have seen at some of the colleges across the state large numbers of potential fraud students, and there's a lot of things that we get told by the federal student aid people and our state system office to be on the lookout for. Because certainly we don't want to disadvantage a student who's actually enrolled in taking classes, but we do want to catch where we may have potential fraud where it's going to be people coming for the Pell money and disappearing. So this was a very large topic <laughs> and so much more we could talk about. Maybe some point we'll have someone from the U.S. Department of Ed's Office of Inspector General come and talk on this show a little bit about this. It's an interesting subject and something that obviously any one of us who pays any amount of taxes would like to see diminish or disappear. So that was a big topic because a number of our schools here in the Southland, um, south part of the state, might be looking at potential fraud. Other topics at hand, well, you know, it's the summer. A lot of schools have had retirements. People are shuffling around to different schools. So I've, I'm trying to help our regional reps as the CISFA pres past president that I am. Keep our list of contacts accurate. L.A. and O.C. alone have 30-some, uh, 34, 35 community colleges. This isn't even talking about Riverside or San Bernardino. They're in a different region, region number nine. But in L.A. and O.C., yeah, 34 colleges or so. And, again, with a little bit of shuffling and retirement, trying to keep track of who's where right now is a little bit of work. Especially because there's a lot of things still coming back and forth, and we want to make certain schools don't fall off the map and forget about things. For example, you know, once the state budget got passed, which, you know, they do work hard now to get that thing passed by July 1st. And the reason is, you know, they passed, a, I believe, a law at some point in our own state here that if they don't pass the state budget by July 1st, it's like the state legislators don't get paid from there on through. So they pass a preliminary budget. They got it all done in time. And one of the things that comes out of there that all the financial aid directors want to know about is what we call our BFAP spending, B-F-A-P. It comes from our state system office, and it's funding that goes to all the community colleges to help pay for the operational expenses of our financial aid offices. So there's some caveats to how that works. There's a number of different programs that are specifically laid out into law this way, so it's not just that a community college like mine or any others in the state here just gets one lump sum of money to spend for their operations, faculty, staff, actual facilities and such. There's a certain amount that is set up that way, but certain programs like running a financial aid office, running what we call an EOPS office, extended opportunity programs and services, our disabled student programs and services office, and a number of others, and they get, in a sense, these little block grants. Now, the problem with the BFAP funding has been, since it was set up almost 20 years ago, it was tied almost straight towards the number of students that are enrolled at your school and to the number of fee waivers you process. Well, as you could guess, again, we've had lowering enrollments uh, since prior to the pandemic across the state, which generally meant lower numbers of students getting fee waivers. And so with a pot of money that doesn't grow and lowering of those, most of the schools are getting less funding, which happens to coincide at the same time 
as people's salaries continue to grow every year, you know, they maybe get just a little cost of living increase or you're trying to add staff to do something new in your office because you did grow maybe five years ago. Now you're getting an opportunity to hire. But you add all that up, you think of the cost of benefits going up, and you really get squeezed. And so we've been doing quite a bit of work at the CISFA level, and we're going to continue to work through our state system office to try to make the understanding that our buying power is really fading, and it's fading fast. And so if we don't get some help on this, just like in my school, I can't hire one of my positions that someone retired recently from because I don't have that BFAP funding available that I had used all these many years to pay for that position. Yet the amount of work that we do continues to grow. New financial aid programs, new amounts of financial aid, emergency aid, so many things out there that's hitting us hard. I don't want to burden you with it. In fact, I feel I should play some music to calm ourselves down here. And we'll be back for our last segment. And just like that, all of that's washed away, and we are ready for our last sip segment of whatever you're drinking tonight, if you're listening to this tonight. So without Dana here, I don't have her I Dare You Twos, but I can tell you what my I Dare You Two is. My I Dare You Two is for Dana to heal quickly here from her uh, appendix removal, right? They didn't put it in. Now they took it out. They took it out. And for her to regain all her health, she sounds good. I talked to her on the phone. She still sounds like Dana. So we will have her back as soon as we can. And, of course, so that you listeners uh, who are probably getting a little bored of just listening to me uh, can listen to both of us again, banter back and forth. But I don't want her to, you know, break through her stitches or I think she said they glued her up. How very interesting here. So that's my idea, you two, is for Dana to heal and for all of us. Check out over our own health and stay on top of that. So that's really about all I have time for today. But don't worry, there's always our next episode to come. So I want to thank uh, Dana out there, although she's not here on the show, for joining us in spirit. And of course, thank you, our audience, for tuning in. If you have something to say or you have some topics you want us to discuss, email us at wbcsfa at gmail.com. You can find this and all What's Brewing Ceasefire podcasts on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing Ceasefire is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana. This has been episode number 116, recording the night, late night almost, of Friday, August 20th, 2021. Everybody have a great day and night and have a great weekend.